Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with journalist and author Malcolm Harris. Malcolm writes essays and books that are analytical of the establishment and the status quo. His first book, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials, deconstructs many myths associated with being a millennial, including the idea that millennials are lazy and entitled. His second book, Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, is a collection of essays that are critical of modern-day North American society. In it, he examines, explains, and even demystifies cultural and political movements and events. Speaking about millennial experience in our conversation, Malcolm says that we're in a crisis moment and that is going to characterize more and more of our experience in this world. Here's where I give the company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep these conversations going. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay, back to Malcolm Harris. Malcolm was born in 1988, so he's part of the generation that he writes about. His work is probably best described as academic and contemplative. Malcolm is what my friend Aurora Ford would call a patient thinker. He works from research, historical precedents, and statistics to understand how the world is changing. Although Malcolm isn't from Alaska, his reporting and his perspective on millennials is universally important. I believe that Alaska is such a transient state that any story from anybody in the world can be applicable to Alaskans. So here he is, Malcolm Harris. (laughs) This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Thanks for taking some time to uh, chat with me, man. Yeah, no problem. So I have this one note on my phone that I I wanted to read first because I was doing some reading this morning um, from your book. So this morning I read your essay, Where Should a Millennial or Where Should a Good Millennial Live? Mm -hmm. Where you described how two separate millennials, one is a programmer for Google, the other is a professional athlete. And both caught the attention of the media by living out of their vehicles because it makes sense economically. You write that the best place a millennial can take shelter, according to the media reaction, seems to be in a car near work. What do you think that says about society right now? Well, I mean, it's important in that article that the people I'm talking about are uh, uh major league baseball pitcher and a Google programmer because a lot of people live in their cars near work and, and they don't get a lot of credit for it from the, uh, the media establishment. But it's about a couple of things. One is about the decrease in living standards for workers, right? Living in the back of a car or a van or whatever is worse than living in a house, um, period, in terms of like what you have access to. Mm-hmm. And another is uh efficiency as workers right if you're in a in a car or if you don't have a, a fixed living place you can be moved somewhere or you can easily move somewhere uh where you can be of more use to capital to people who own companies or want to employ you or don't want to employ you uh you become more flexible and more efficient which is good for company own people who own companies but not very good for you as someone who's become like an itinerant worker mm-hmm. you know that's something that you you've talked about in your previous book, Kids These Days, is human capital, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
human capital, we often talk about as if it's about uh, something that workers own themselves that they can then sell, but it's not. It's just a, it describes your work. It's how labor appears to capital during the production process. Um, so we talk about a firm has workers, right? It has like human resources. That's us as far mm -hmm. as they're concerned, right? They've already paid for us or whatever. And we've come to think of ourselves more and more in those terms, not as citizens or as even as workers who have our own interests that we want to like fight for, but as human capital, as assets of companies. So we're a commodity. Yes, absolutely. Um, a, a commodity, specifically a commodity that's used during the production process, right? Companies don't sell their workers exactly, uh, but they put us to work. That's, that's what we're good for. So the same way you might have like industrial equipment, um, that's what workers appear to capitalists as, basically industrial equipment. This seems a lot like kind of the beginning of the, the industrial age, right? Like with Charlie Chaplin, um, I always think of him Oh God, I always forget the name of the movie, but Modern he's, Times. yeah, yeah. Where he's like physically going through the cogs, you know? Yeah. Well, then this is a, we're living in a slightly different version of that moment where, um, there's a good article I think was on the verge actually recently about automation and how it's not the automation, the way automation is working, isn't that we're being, you know, replaced by robots that are picking stuff up and moving stuff for us. It's that the control systems, the management systems are being run by robots. And so they figured out the best way to make us run, pick, jump, do all our, our work requirements faster, more efficiently. And that's the part that's been automated, not the actual work itself. Mm -hmm. So getting on to your new book called Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, which is a collection of essays that are critical of modern day North American society. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, you could say that. I haven't, I haven't put it that way before, but uh, I think that's probably accurate. In the book, there are sections titled things like Marx, Gender and Sex, Silicon Valley, and Millennials, among others. In those sections, you examine, explain, and even demystify cultural and political movements and events. Does that sound accurate as well? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. As I was reading, I kept thinking of uh, Joan Didion's book, Slouching Toward Bethlehem, because in the same way that she examined the 60s, you're examining the early 2000s. Interesting. Have you heard that connection before? No, no. And everyone gets compared to Joan Didion these days. So I guess it was about my turn. <laughs> is that is that right? Yeah, well, she's the, the patron saint of uh, of essayists these days. I guess that's probably true. You know, I wonder if there's like a resurgence in reading Joan Didion. I think so. I think that's a thing. I've never been that into her work personally. Um, but I think she's definitely inspired a lot of writing that we see these days. I feel like your work is a lot more academic. Uh, with me, I have to really sit down with an essay and I'm not too, uh, my mind doesn't work well in economics or politics that well. So I have to do a lot of like research, you know, I'm just, that's not how my brain's wired. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that Joan Didion is kind of the, she exemplifies like the every woman, right? Like she's just kind of the man on the street or the woman on the street kind of doing the thing and observing. Yeah. And I think the, since then, there's been a lot of development or working with that sort of new journalism perspective and taking it from more different perspectives and critical examinations of how it works. Um, I think it's valuable and we see a lot of it, but we also see young writers these days sort of pressured to filter themselves or squeeze themselves into that role where they're um, using themselves as the lens through which to understand society. And I feel lucky that I haven't really had to do that in my writing career, that I get to do sort of more straight up analysis that I don't have to tell you about, you know, my life as the justifying context for me writing in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard from older journalists that get kind of butthurt that new journalists, younger journalists 
use the pronoun I too mm -hmm. much. It's funny, yeah, because it's not a, a a new. That's not a new turn. That's an old turn. Um, so we're we're just uh, following. If you're mad about that, you can go back to Didion and Hunter S. Thompson and Tom Wolfe and the rest of them. And yeah. in fact, if you tried to hold any of those people, or even like someone more recent, like David Foster Wallace, to the actual standards of like factual journalism that we have now, even for first person stuff, like they would all fail. They like they made up all sorts of stuff and just told stories and um, had a lot of fun with it. And that's one of the reasons it reads so fun. They also got paid a lot better. They totally did. I was reading, um, yeah, Slouching Toward Bethlehem a couple months back. And it was either in the book or I did some kind of extracurricular research and looking at how much writers got paid to, say, write for The New Yorker. And they were able to – it was a livable wage. Now, if you're a writer, you are basically like destitute and poor. It's tough. Um, yeah. Well, and there's a, there's a piece in that new collection uh, that does sort of tracks the history of word rates for freelance journalism in that way. Uh, and it's crazy. It's like you, we watch our our fees get cut in like by a quarter, basically to a quarter of what they were at the high point of his career. And it's totally changed the kind of work that gets published. It changed the kind of people who can do the work that uh, we do. It changes the quality of work because we we have to do it faster. We don't have like a year to work on a story or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it's just like less of a less as good a job uh, for the vast majority of us freelance writers, which some of us are still lucky to make a living off of it. And I've, again, I can't stress how lucky I feel to be able to do that. But at the same time, if you when you start looking back at people who are getting the modern day equivalent of like $30,000 for a story and you feel like, oh, goddamn, like no wonder everything was so much better in the 60s. Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't know if everything was better in the 60s. <laughs> no, but I mean, the, the quality of the stories that they were able to pursue. For sure, for sure. You know, you mentioned in one of the essays, infotainment. And I feel like that is a little bit of a byproduct of having to produce so much content so rapidly. Yeah, well, it's easy. Infotainment is an easy way to get attention. Clickbait. Um, yeah, well, uh, people like to learn stuff and they like to know stuff that they didn't know before. It's, it's, a, it's called the curiosity gap headlines. Um, for for those are like the clickbait ones of you'll never believe X, Y, Z or like whatever. And you, you click because you want to resolve that curiosity gap. You want to know the thing you don't know now. And it's a pretty easy in a like, you know, psychological manipulation way to play with people's attention like that. Do you think that we're becoming more immune to stuff like that? Uh, I think, yeah, I think our tolerance to it builds up over time for sure. I think if you like took someone from the 60s or whatever and plopped them down here, they would sit down next to Netflix and wouldn't get up for seven months or whatever. So <laughs> They'd be Netflixing and chilling super hard. Right, the overdosing. <laughs> Okay, so I, I have I have another line of questioning, and actually I'm I'm looking at it, and it looks like it's it's about your book Kids These Days, which is actually how it was introduced to you. I was walking around Barnes and Noble, uh, was there with my wife, and I don't know if it was necessarily featured, but it was in like a prominent area, and Sweet. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I, I mean, I read the cover, and I'll just get into my questions. <laughs> <laughs> So your first book, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials, kind of deconstructs the myth of millennials being lazy and entitled. You've been described as a generational advocate. Do you ever feel a sense of responsibility? Um, for the portrayal of the generation or uh, not really. Um because I think millennials have done a pretty good job advocating for ourselves as a cohort these days. Um, I think we, we've sort of come into our own in some ways, at least if you look at the like current political scene, it seems really, yeah, age is, is a really salient category in a way that I was sort of arguing for at the time for understanding it that way as a like salient material category. Um, and I think people now 
basically understand that, which is which is good. So I I feel I'm feel much less uh, burdened by that kind of thing than I did when it came out in the first place a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. How do you think millennials are similar and or different than previous generations? Uh, we're born at a different time, and that's the that's <laughs> that's the like. It sounds like a joke, but the the differences between generational cohorts aren't like existential, right? We're not like a further evolved form of humanity or whatever. It's just that we're born under different historical circumstances. And specifically, we were born under the historical circumstances that were left by the couple generations and before us, as well as ones before them, but approximately uh, by the baby boomers, who were a large and influential generation and sort of structured society for us. Um, that has led to things that we can understand as like personality differences. Uh, millennials score much less trusting, socially trusting than past generations do. We have much higher rates of anxiety um, and depression than past generations do. We can look at that in terms of like lifestyle characteristics. We have uh, lower rates of marriage younger. You've got lower rates of child reproduction. You can look at it like in terms of where we live. We're less likely to form independent households younger. We're significantly more educated or uh, indebted at higher rates. So you can look at a number of what I think of as characteristic experiences generationally, cohort-wise, that you can contrast pretty easily with past cohorts who had very different ones and sort of left us the way we are. And that's really what the whole book is about, you know? I like that distinction you just made about how millennials aren't any more evolved than previous generations. We're just living in a different time because I think that a lot of millennials, including myself at times, think that, you know, we're just more existentially evolved than previous generations. Yeah. I mean, that's like obviously not true in any real sense, right? It's a, and there's no, there's no even real like bright line between generational cohorts. It's not like there's someone who's a like last Gen Xer and a first millennial person. It's about your relation to your society. For sure. So I wonder if perception about millennials right now is still very like reactionary because we're living through it and older generations are reacting in real time rather than the kind of analytical kind of in-context understanding that comes with time. Yeah, I, I, again, I think the understanding has shifted a lot uh, since I was writing this book, which was mostly like 2015 or something, um, uh, for the better for the most part, you know? Mm-hmm. In what way? Uh, well, the situation has got worse, right? So, uh, And people's understanding of why that is and what it is that has got worse, I think, has increased. So you have a, a much better understanding widespread about what capitalism is, how it works, and in, in whose interest it works. We have a better understanding of uh, white supremacy and how white supremacy functions in this country historically. I think we have a better understanding of how patriarchy works uh, in America and how it structures our workplaces and home lives and social existences. So that's huge progress, you know? And what is understanding those things how does it affect how we react to them? Well, we can look at the election right now, for example, right, where you have ages like the most salient question demographically in terms of who on, on the Democrat side people are supporting. And then once you get to the presidential election, it will continue to be the most salient category in terms of which candidate you support, no matter who the Democrat is, pretty much. Um, and so age has become, the age cohort has been become the dividing line in our politics. And that's because these younger cohorts are significantly to the left politically than the older ones. And that reflects the their political experience. You know, I don't know the answer to this question, but I wonder if... So I, I've heard that as you get older, and I'm from Alaska, so this is a different, you know, this is a whole different beast. But as you get older, you become more conservative. You know, you want to keep the things that you have worked for. I feel like I'm I'm pretty center. I, I'm probably more liberal than I am conservative because for one reason or another. But 
in your experience, have you seen that to be true? That as we're younger, we are more inclined to be liberal. And as we get older, we're more inclined to be conservative. So like many of our ideas about how the human life cycle works, this is based on the baby boomer experience, right? It's a very specific cohort experience. And it has to do with a particular relationship to asset prices, particularly stock ownership and home ownership. And so it's not so much what or what the numbers are showing now, because millennials have gotten older, right? We are older now. I'm in my 30s. The old, oldest mm -hmm. millennial bump by my calculation is in their 40s. Um, and yet we haven't seen that political shift. We still prefer socialism to capitalism as a cohort. Um, and that's because these it wasn't so much about age as you get more conservative. It's homeowners are more conservative. And that had been correlated with age, but it's not necessarily related. And if you look at the cohorts of millennials locked out of this sort of ownership experience. And again, not everyone becomes conservative ever because not everyone ever owned a house, right? It's not mm -hmm. like 100% of old people have any particular politics. You got still got plenty of old Trotskyists hanging around whatever left-wing meeting <laughs> you go to. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's about these material conditions more than it is uh, anything existential about aging. We have to differentiate between what's called lifestyle, life cycle effects and cohort effects. And life cycle effects are things that happen to everybody as they age. And cohort effects are things that happen to uh, based on when you're born and your relation to the world. Uh, my favorite example is baby boomers love drugs. And we used to think it's that the model was young people love drugs. And then as you get older, you use fewer recreational drugs. Um, but that that's actually not true. It just happens that the cohort of baby boomers loves drugs. And so when they were young, it looked like young people did drugs. And then as they got older, the statistics and the narrative starts to shift to like, oh, well, now medium middle aged people seem to be loving drugs. And now it's like, old folks homes filled with people doing crazy amounts of drugs. And it's not about a life cycle effect. There's no necessary relationship between aging and drug use. It's a cohort effect question. And you're talking about recreational drugs, not pharmaceuticals, correct? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can use pharmaceuticals recreationally, but yes. So what kind of drugs are they doing in these old folks homes? Well, I mean, all sorts of drugs. I mean, you can look it up. It's crazy <laughs> from like a hallucin increased hallucinogen use among elderly people. Because um, again, we, we know what their life experience looks like to like, uh, you know, heroin and shit. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, but not that crazy when you think about their life experiences, right? Uh, okay. It's, it's like, it's not about, it's not a question of maturity or immaturity. Uh, yeah, these are cohort effects. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday and one of their parents works at an old folks home and their parent was joking about when millennials get to the age of having to be in old folks homes and you'll get like the Britneys and the Heathers and the Jennifers, you know? Right, there. exactly. Yeah, and we think about these as... Um, as associated with age, but again, that that has a lot to do with baby boomer hegemony, where we take like, and it's like like hating your parents or whatever, like you know all these things we think of as like, oh, that's what age is, that's what youth is, that's what uh, growing old is. That's just one particular experience, and it's not normal. It's actually like historically anomalous. It's very strange. And so another example that I use is there's been. One of the criticisms of millennials or one of the things they say about millennials is like millennials don't have very much sex. Like it's crazy that millennials uh, rates of sex have been going down. The age which, which is funny, by the way, they want us to have more sex. <laughs> right. Well, and, the, and the age of sexual initiation is going up, right? People are losing their virginity, quote unquote, later. Uh, and people are like, oh, it's, this must be something weird about millennials. And the truth is, if you look historically, at the historical data, it's not that millennials are weird. Millennials are actually very normal. It's that baby boomers were, are weird. They had an earlier age of sexual initiation than like anyone else had before. And they had more sex with more partners for a longer amount of time. And we know this sort of like about the 
sexual revolution, that that was a, an anomalous historical occurrence. And yet in our heads, we've sort of just made this adjustment to like, oh, that's how the world works now. That's what's normal now. But that's never been the case. And so trying to work from a, a baseline of um, baby boomer experience is going to th throw off all of our models. Why do you think we pay so much attention to baby boomers? Because uh, it's a very important generation. They own all the media. So <laughs> they control our attention in a really direct way uh, is the, like, the easiest answer. And I think they're probably the truest one. Maybe can we talk about that a little bit more? Just, I guess, maybe the implications. I mean, also, they own the media, but then, you know, you have it on kind of a micro level where a millennial will kind of battle against their parents, you know, their parents, like ideologies and things like that. Uh, yeah, but the, that's on the ground, the like ideological ground that we're, that we're fighting on is, is, uh, established by people who like own television stations and stuff. True. Yeah. And they tend to be like in their seventies still, which again, historically anomalous in past, uh, generations, 70 something year olds didn't like run all of society. And so again, <laughs> that's, that's a like anomalous baby boomer. No, seriously. Like when baby yeah, boomers yeah. were coming up, right. When they were like in their forties, they were in charge. It's like, okay, great. You've been in charge now for like many decades. And that's never, that has not happened before in that way. So that's why we're, we keep paying attention is because they've maintained this grip uh, on power as a cohort. And again, like not everyone in the cohort, obviously, uh, not like every old person is a media oligarch, but the media oligarchs tend to be old people. And the reason I was laughing is I just had this image of like Mr. Burns, you know, just just forever the boss. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's really one. Well, a, a good example people talk about is Christmas songs, that every year it's the same Christmas songs and it's all the Christmas, all the Christmas songs were written in this in this period. Um, and so that baby boomers listened to them when they were kids. And we have never changed the Christmas songs. We just listened to we all experienced their nostalgia forever. That, that is really interesting because I think that we uh, millennials are – and maybe actually it comes from the top down from the boomers uh, or the baby boomers. So we have this like resurgence of like nostalgia culture. So, you know, you have Stranger Things, which is, you know, arguably one of the biggest television shows in the world. And that whole thing is based on nostalgia, right? Like the last season you had – all of the kids in the mall and you you see the neon lights of Sam Goody and you know it, it does something to you on like a I don't know like a like a psychological level like you recognize it and you're brought right back there you know yeah I mean it's pretty like it's a pretty cheap way uh, and we know that that to provoke emotions right and so as these things get rationalized and as they become more companies get more efficient about maintaining and grabbing our attention, I think they sort of tend towards these cheap things in the way that like superhero movies work that way too, right? And mm -hmm. I think it's bizarre that kids today still play with Pokemon cards. I'm not sure how if you got kids or no kids or whatever, but they're still playing with basically the same Pokemon cards that they played with when I was a kid. They came out when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, and that seems kind of incredible to me. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, you know what's really interesting about all this is that there's no like silver bullet. There's no one answer to why, you know, shit is fucked up and bullshit. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it's the it is it is itself, right? The there it's the 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 problem is the problem. There's not a it's not that something's broken, right? It's that the system is mm. bad. When I think that that's one of the most detrimental things about that infotainment that we were talking about earlier is you have um, an entire generation of people that understand politics as an argument. And I've talked about this in the in the podcast and past episodes where you have, you know, one person against one other person and they're arguing their one tiny idea against another tiny idea when in actuality that issue has like a multitude uh, variables, you know, so it simplifies it. Yeah, well, and that's what that's why we need a like thorough critique of all of society. You know, we can't just talk about 
one policy that's broken or something because again it's not broken it's it's working uh, and so we need to understand what it is that's working and why it's bad yeah that that's great i haven't heard that in a long time that it's working things are working because right now everyone is under the impression that everything is broken yeah it's 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 not it's not the case and we need to see that uh everything that's going on right now is a is a continuation of what's been going on in this country for a while. Um, we look at the, the Trump administration or whatever, and I remember saying as a kid when they formed the Department of Homeland Security when I was in seventh grade or whatever, that like, this is fascist. What are they doing with the Department of Homeland Security and and ICE? Why are they putting the immigration with it, which had been under the State Department under the new fascist Homeland Security Department? They're probably gonna like put kids in cages and like, here we are. That's what's been happening the whole time, you know? Um, so we need we need perspective. Yeah, and I think books like yours help add that perspective. I sure hope so. You know, what do you hope to achieve with this book, uh, your new book, Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, as well as your previous book, Kids These Days? Uh, well, it's my job, first of all, uh, and people need to understand that our writing from professional writers is we do this to make money and I don't think it's like coextensive with my political work um at the same time I, I I do hope that people who read it are able to maybe get a different perspective on things they've maybe ta taken for granted because they don't get sort of a critical view on society that looks at it as something that is working functioning well in some people's interests and against other people's. Mm -hmm. You know, something that, that I was thinking of when I first saw your book uh, and I was like, oh, I got to buy this, you know, after reading the cover and then the, uh, the sleeve was that it was vindication. You know, I'm going to read this and I'm going to be vindicated for all of these, uh, these frustrations that I feel. And as I was reading it, I also thought, that it, it could be a piece to help older generations understand millennials. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I've gotten some feedback uh, along those lines from people, uh, which I really appreciate. Um, so, and I sort of I wrote it, it isn't written as a like, hey, fellow millennial, like, isn't it messed up that they talk about it like, like that? At least not too much. Which is great. And I, you know, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I want to commend you on that because one of my pet peeves is when you have these like really self-righteous articles that are talking about how baby boomers have wronged them personally, you right. know, and, and they're very like Twitter language about it. Hmm. And yours is not like that at all. I think it's very analytical. It's coming from like, these are the facts. Yeah, I think that's the way to to reach the broadest variety of people, or at least that's what I've tried to do. And I think there's definitely a place for preaching to the choir, you know? Um, and I do some of that maybe in the new book a little more. The new book was also about like preserving work that I think was my best over the past 10 years in a way that it's not gonna just disappear off the internet. So like that piece you were talking about earlier about where should a good millennial live, uh, that was originally written for a site called Fusion that no longer exists that then became a site called Splinter that no longer exists. And so now it's just up on the archive of the site Splinter that's owned by some hedge fund that might just decide to stop paying to host it one of these days and then it just disappears. So we are also at the, the mercy of these kind of companies. And one way you can sort of preserve work that has been online that might not be preserved otherwise is to put it in a book. So I was lucky that Melville House wanted to to help me do that. Oh man, you just answered one of my questions, so that was that was great. So now I gotta I gotta skip over. All right, see, we're <laughs> increasingly efficient. Exactly. Okay, so what do you think world politics and economics will look like after the baby boomers have retired and power is left to the millennials? Who I mean. So far, not so great, right? I look at Australia. So I, I grew up in Northern California. My parents are, are 
still in Northern California, not where I grew up, but a, a little further out. Um, they're in like rural North California, which has been, you know, on fire a lot lately. And they've had to evacuate a couple years in a row now. Last year, they had to evacuate from their evacuation. Um, didn't have enough clothes. You know, it was a, a hectic situation. Um, and they're lucky their home didn't burn down. And we know mm -hmm. it's going to happen again next year. And we look at Australia where a whole continent goes up on fire and people are running for their lives into the water. Uh, that's going to characterize more and more of our, of our experience in this world. Um, we're in a, in a crisis moment. And until we really, if we don't address this crisis moment as a species, not as a countries or as a class or as uh, divided in the ways that we are, but like as a species of humans, if we don't do that, that's all we're going to be dealing with is fire. The whole place is going to fucking burn down. Jeez, that's bleak. Yeah, it is really bleak. I mean, it's uh, we're we're seeing it. This is a a real turning point. We better turn fast. Mm -hmm. You know, I work with youth as well, so so teenagers. And one thing that just hit me as you were saying that is. We have a student, a group of students who are working on producing stories about school safety, right? So school shootings, what do you do during an Alice drill? What do you, you know, like, are these things kind of ethical? Just looking at that little variable, which is the Alice drill, which is something that I think is super interesting because it's still being kind of like what what will the Alice drill look like for say our kids when we have kids right because the fire drill you know that that's pretty much like they got that down you know the the fire drill that we had when we were kids this is the same fire drill that youth are having nowadays and i'm sure it was the same fire drill as our parents right so they they've perfected the fire drill well, they mean, have not they perfected the Alice drill they had nuclear bomb drills also right uh where yeah. it was like duck and cover under your desk for the nuclear bomb which is sort of what these ones feel like i mean i was i was in middle school when columbine happened uh, i'm pretty sure or like late elementary school even and so they started doing bomb drills and shooting drills when I was in kid when I was a kid. Okay. Um, and we all thought our school was going to be the next one to get shot up or whatever, um, because we all hated school and that's what those shootings were about. Um, and so we figured everyone else did too, and we understand stood where they were coming from. And so it was always funny to us that when they were taking us through these drills we knew that whoever was going to bomb the campus or shoot up the campus was also on the drill with us, mm -hmm. that they were one of us. And so it was all the, okay, so we're all going to go to the, the bleachers at the, uh, by the field if there's a bomb threat. And we were like, okay, well, then wouldn't they just put a bomb under the bleachers by the field? <laughs> like, yeah, they, yeah. are we just like going to give our plan to the shooter who is also like one of these people standing around us? And so that, for me, reflected an inability to deal with the actual cause of what we were talking about, which was like school itself as a thing that was alienating and damaging enough of its students to make this a like problem. The truth is violence in schools is way down, um, including gun violence in schools is way down. We've had violence in, in general in the country is way down. We're living in a anomalously nonviolent time. When we see these mass shootings, they're, I think, particularly psychologically destabilizing because it's really fucked up. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not that that doesn't mean that, and it's not true that our schools are more dangerous than they've been before. And I think people who want to portray that them that way t tend to have ulterior agendas. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason I brought that up is it's this ongoing trauma to generations, you know, so we have millennials have, you know, our own stuff. And then now I can see it kind of happening with the new generation. And it gets back to, you know, my question, which was, uh, what will life be like? Uh, after the baby boomers have retired, millennials take over and millennials take over and 
your response was a little bleak. You know, if we continue on this path, it's not going to look good. Yeah, and but I think the 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 flip side of that is that if we give up this whole the you know the whole world as we understand it now, and we drop it, and we think about a, a different kind of world where we can address questions like these uh, as a species. Because I, I have no doubt that if we, if we came together as a species and said, if humans came together as humans and said, we got to deal with this environmental crisis right now, immediately, everything falls second to that. Um, you know, we got to make sure everyone's got what they need in order to help work on this collective project that is the maintenance of the earth so that mm -hmm. we can keep living here because we got nowhere else to go. I have no doubt that we could solve it in a way that makes the world a much better place to live very quickly. Um, I have a lot of confidence in the flexibility of our planet if we're willing to cooperate in that way. So I, I'm still optimistic here. I like to think of myself as an optimist, even though what I'm talking about is historically really bleak. Yeah. So in another one of your essays, in your book, you say that millennials are the most indebted generation in history. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, it's really all about education debt, um, almost exclusively. And we've seen as part of the changes to the economy over the past few decades, we've seen a shifting of human capital production costs, right? The production of the skills we need to work at the jobs that need to be filled the cost of that production has been shifted to individual workers and their families off of both the state and companies themselves. So now instead of a company paying you to learn the skills they need you to have in order for them to hire you, or even like, you know, pay you to go to school to learn the skills that they need you to have, and instead of the government paying for the schools and you going there for free to learn the skills that you need to have to work for a company, you have to go and pay for them yourself or your family has to pay for them um, in order for that, that you might provide them to a company. Mm -hmm. This is the learn to code thing. And we've been told that the result of that is going to be increased wages. And we haven't seen that. And we have this basic contradiction that if more education leads to better jobs and people are more educated now than they ever have been before, why aren't the jobs better? Mm -hmm. And they won't answer that. They won't tell you why they, <laughs> what the answer is, but there is one. And it's because they, the, the money's gone to exploitation instead. It's been profit at the top instead of widely shared, right? They've shifted these costs onto us. Which is scary. Yeah, and it's hard to fight against because it's still true that, you know, it's not that going to college for an individual worker isn't worth it because they've made life so hard for people who don't play along. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that as an, as an individual, your best bet is just to sort of keep your head down and play along as best as you can and hope you make it to the other side. But collectively, when everyone tries to do that, we're all screwed, right? Then everyone's just putting their head down and trying to get to the other side and companies have their pick. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about that is the college experience and that degree only really matters in the very beginning for that entry level job or for that first maybe like five years where they actually want to see your degree, you know, outside of that, you just give somebody your resume and you're like, Hey, look at all this work that I've been doing for 15 years, you know? Yeah. And it's not like they check your grades from college or whatever, but you're constantly laned according to these things, right? They constantly, they're able to make these, uh, this competition matter all the time, um, in little ways so that you're always, trying your best to beat the people around you. And if you're always mm -hmm. trying your best to beat the people around you, that changes your orientation toward your community. And we talk about social levels of social trust being really low. Well, that's probably part of it, right? Yeah, yeah, I would think so. So I have this recurring dream. Uh, it is college PTSD, where I realize at, at, at some point that I've been missing math class. <laughs> that I haven't been going to math class. I just, it's out of my head. I keep forgetting about it. Do you have any college PTSD dreams? 
Oh, not too many these days, right? Uh, mostly recovered, but it is interesting that we, and even like people still remember elementary school stuff, whatever, middle school, I still have, you know, sinking feelings about some answer I gave in high school or whatever. And it's because they make these things feel so important mm -hmm. because that's how you get people to invest themselves and invest their work and time and energy into things that are not actually that important. If I could mm -hmm. go back in time and tell myself something, it would be to like, you know, chill out, go smoke more weed and like, don't do so much homework. Yeah. At the same time, that might have like sabotaged my whole life. And I might only be here because I worked so hard when I was a kid in some ways, even though that's not fair or right. So uh, it's tough. And that's a, that's how they get you. Yeah, it's impossible to know. So what do you think is actually important then? You know, because I, I, I totally agree with you that if I could go back in time and tell my younger self like hey like that's not important you know stop worrying so much about it what would you tell your younger self is important um well i wish i would honestly just relaxed a bit more and found ways to enjoy myself um i was really i was really like angry all the time as a kid uh because there's a lot to be angry about and I part part of me wanted to like you know grow up really fast because it seemed like that was the only way to be taken seriously at all, uh, mm -hmm. and the problems of the world were such that I felt the need to be taken really seriously because they were serious problems, um, and so yeah you don't want to like I guess Monday morning quarterback your your childhood too much because you can always do hindsight is twenty twenty, um, but if people want to know like you know advice for thinking about your 12 year old or whatever uh, the future is really unassured right now and so i think maybe we should put a little more value on enjoying the life you are living while you're living it yeah i think that that's that's something that really hit me in my 30s like almost the second i, I turned 30 i just had this like wave of like I'm still anxious. I'm still an anxious person, but I'm less anxious and I kind of live day to day. Yeah. And I think part of that is like a, like adjusting expectations and you like, you're okay with living the, the life you're living in some ways and you feel less like you're trying to live up to um, the expectation you have for yourself. But these are also like we're saying, like not necessarily life cycle effects. These are, uh, I mean, partly life cycle effects, partly this is, that is just an aging thing, but also your relationship to like work is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basically trying to find your personal identity as well as your professional identity. Yeah. I guess the twenties is when you, when you mostly do that. Um, although again, that's been, that's changed over time. Uh, if you look back to the sixties or whatever, you might be like 19 in a union job perfectly able to take care of yourself and a household uh, on your income. Mm -hmm. And that is a that leads to a different orientation toward the world, right? That's a different path of personal development. Yeah, that's interesting because it's, you know, your experience really paints how you look at the world and how you perceive other people. So if you were 19 years old and you were able to make that livable wage, it's say as a, a baby boomer and to be able to pay for a family, right? It, it, this is all conceivable and it's all, you know, it's real and you experienced it. So why wouldn't it be true for your kids? Right. Um, and that's, a, I think that's like denial. That's like, a, that's a psychological issue, you know, because you can look at the world and understand. All you have to do is try to understand it all. And so I think that's mostly people who uh, don't want to deal with the state of the world and they don't want to deal with thinking about their complicity in the state of the world. Mm -hmm. So you talk a lot about large issues, climate change, college debt, societal unrest, and the need to move toward a more positive and sustainable direction. You said that you're positive. Um, where do we start? Uh, it's hard. Uh, the, the one I've been thinking about in a really like concrete and specific way is the ring cameras. I don't know if they're, they're up where you are, but suddenly everywhere I, I go around South Philadelphia where I live, there are all these doorbell cameras that are attached to Amazon servers watching all my streets. Uh, 
and that's part of making the world a much worse place. Like, that's, a, I think, a considerable step in the process toward making the world a much worse step, a much Very worse place. Very Orwellian. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's really hard to stress how bad it is. The idea that the, the biggest company in the country would have cameras on all of our streets that we maintain for them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> recording all the time whenever there is activity that, again, you don't even, people don't even own their own ring cameras. They're just paying for access to Amazon. Uh, totally crazy to me. Um, and so this is a, I think those in particular give us a chance to, it's a test to see what we're going to allow and what we're not, what we're willing to do to prevent a institution like Amazon from taking that sort of control over our lives. Mm -hmm. And we can say like, no, that's not okay. There's no like property right that allows you to like put this camera on the street and take pictures of me every day and send them to Amazon every time I leave my house. Uh, that like, I don't consent to that just because you live there or just because the developer put one on the door or whatever. Um, and if we like, if we can't address that, then we can't address anything, right? Then we can't, then we've like basically given up as a society if, if, we, yeah. if we're willing to accept that. And so I'm interested in what, what uh, non-acceptance of that would look like in a social uh, material way. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, I think right now society is extremely ripe for onion articles. They're so absurd, but they're also so true. You know, like the fact that there are cameras from the largest company in the world and we just let them be. And like people that, are paying to put them on their houses. I mean, that's, it's hard absurd. to believe, right? And it's hard to contextualize. And then they say like, well, I got to prevent the package theft. And it's like, because Amazon just leaves packages on your doorstep. Yeah, they're <laughs> creating like, the problem. They're negligent because they don't want to pay, you know, USPS to actually, you know, it's like when you start to actually think about it, what happens when the post office wants to drop a package and they don't, you're not there? Well, they take it to the post office that they maintain in every neighborhood. Amazon doesn't want to have to maintain an office in every neighborhood where they hold the packages. Mm -hmm. And so they just leave them there <laughs> because it's cheaper for them. And they make it our responsibility to pick up this thing that they just left on your doorstep as if that's an acceptable way to deliver something. Um, it's not. But we allow them to sort of move the goalposts according to their profitability. And then we have to degrade our life by putting these cameras on our doors or whatever just so that things can be delivered to our house. I listened to Land of the Giants, that podcast about Amazon. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. So there's this episode where this dude, his whole house is like a machine, you know, that that is produced by Amazon. You know, he's got the Alexa. He's got and he's got that in like every single room he's got. I mean, his whole house. I mean, it was completely manufactured by Amazon and he's OK with it. You know, and the whole episode is him justifying why he's cool with it. And it was so bizarre to me because. I have often had this this like flashback to this scene in Fahrenheit 451 where I think it's Montag's wife, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, is in a room that has four walls of screens, right? And that's where she goes to get away. And every time I think about that scene, I think that we're getting closer and closer to it. You know, we have so many screens around us and we are giving up our personal liberty and our privacy like one piece at a time. Yeah, one thing that Orwell got right is that the screens will also be recording, right? And I think that's a key, key part we need to understand is that it's not just that, you know, we're being bombarded with too much entertainment or whatever and that we've been stultified and that I'm sure that happens too but that we're being surveilled constantly uh, and we don't know what they're using all that data for uh, but it's not to make our lives better mm -hmm. it's to we know it's to make profit for them how they're going to do that uh, we're seeing one by one and it creates all sorts of staggering vulnerabilities and so for example every and I want to, I mean, it's important to think, I think, to focus on production, not just the consumption, right? Because we, it's easy to think about us as 
mostly consuming creatures, but that's not what we are. We're mostly producing creatures, right? We spend most of our time at work. Okay. Um, and so when you think about Amazon, it's that they have, they're shifting our production behaviors at least as much as they're shifting our consumption behaviors. And if you read any article about working at Amazon, I don't care if it's about the delivery drivers, the like factory workers packing boxes, or even about like white collar workers in offices in Seattle, every single article talks about using the bathroom and peeing and how they can't, they don't have time to use the bathroom. And that's because Amazon has gotten so good at structuring these jobs to the like end point of human capacity that they're running up against these like biological limits of how much people can work. And they're like, oh, I got to pee in like a bottle in my truck or like in a trash can in the corner of the, the factory or mm-hmm. really like perverse, ridiculous stuff. Um, and then you think about like the spread of pandemic disease or whatever, right? It's like our society are, is being weakened by this exploitation such that if people are working so hard that basic human hygiene has been eliminated because it's not profitable for the companies that employ them, well, that creates the situation where we can all (laughs) die of flu or whatever, uh, right? There are consequences for these things that companies have been able to push off their balance sheets. And if they've found ways to push costs off those balance sheets, they can run those costs up as high as they want without having to pay them. And instead, somebody else has to pay them. We have to pay them. Workers have to pay them. And that's the situation in which we find ourselves. There's also, there's that story, I think I heard about it on the Daily Podcast, which is the New York Times podcast. And this was a while back. I think it was maybe last Christmas or the Christmas before. And a woman had died. I think it was Amazon. And they just blocked the area off. And you like literally were walking around this dead person until like the paramedics came, right? Yeah. And again, that's, that's, this is creating, I mean, it's inhuman in like obvious ways, right? Uh, that's not how we should like treat each other and treat our bodies mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, but there also seem to be good reasons for the taboos we have about treating people like that, including that it weakens your society in any number of different ways such that it's a bad place to live it ends up being a bad or dangerous place to live and that's where we are dealing with the consequences in terms of and that that links the sort of consequences we're seeing in terms of global warming and environmental crisis economic crisis uh pandemic crisis any sort of crisis you want to see can be linked Mm -hmm. to this sort of devaluation of human life around the production process. I feel like the answer is is pretty simple. It's just we need to just chill and not be assholes to each other. Yeah, well, and most of us aren't being assholes, right? It's, uh, most of the people in any society are just trying to do the best they can to get along yeah, yeah. Uh, based on the parameters they've been given, right? You, we make the best of what we've been given for the most part. The people who profit off the current arrangement of society have been doing really, 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 really well for themselves lately, Um, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just that like the 99% has been doing badly. It's that the 1% has been doing like really great over the past (laughs) couple of years. And it's been interesting if you look at the the graphs of the the stock market since uh, the coronavirus panic or whatever, people are like, oh, it's been, it's taking this terrible dive. And then you zoom out to like five years or whatever, or 10 years. And we've been on this, even just in the Trump administration, we've been on this incredible climb, the stock market. And you think about people's lives in America under the Trump administration have been really shitty, right? Things have been getting like way worse for most people. At the same time, based on the stock market, you know, if the stock market is tracking your well-being, which for the most part it does, for most of us it doesn't, but for some people, for the people whose well-being is tracked by the stock market, things have been going incredibly well lately for them. And we need to like link those two things going well for them and things going badly for us and understanding that these are attached. It's a seesaw. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a coincidence. Yeah. Okay. So I have, I just have a couple more questions. So um, I'll be quicker and answers too. No, no, you're good. This okay. is, this is how these things go. I, I mean, I prefer for them to be longer rather than shorter. 
So I recently finished a book called Sapiens, and there's this section where it parallels religion and ideology. Religion being something like Catholicism and ideology being something like capitalism. But the author says that the distinction is semantic and that if a religion is a system of human norms and values that is founded on belief in superhuman order, then Soviet communism was no less a religion than Islam. What do you think of the idea that capitalism and communism are the new religions because they're systems of human norms and values that are founded on belief in a superhuman order? Well, I think communism is based on a on a very human order, uh, nothing more than a human order. So I, I don't think that that definition works very well. As for religion, I mean, yeah, whether you need religion to have a superhuman function or not, uh, I'm not sure. But I think capitalism and, and communism both have perfectly human orders. Those are the, if the laws of capitalism aren't necessarily human, the, the agents of it still are. Um, yeah, so I, I think the, the need to equate things with religions and to understand ideologies as like all sort of the same is a really liberal thing where liberalism wants to understand itself as the absence of ideology and everything else is the presence of ideology and that itself is like obviously really ideological right if you say we yeah, yeah. we don't believe in this stuff everyone else just believes in stuff and that the idea that everything is up for debate or whatever except for everything being up for debate mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> is itself is an ideology if you say like well why do you believe that everything should be up for debate what if yeah. say like the the fundamental equality of all people shouldn't be up for debate why why should it be um, and if your answer is like, well, everything needs to be up for debate, uh, then actually everything isn't up for debate, right? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a, and so this is a, the con basic contradiction of liberalism, um, you know, which means they have some fundamental beliefs that they need to defend if that's what they want to defend as their as the most important thing to believe in. You know, liberals, some liberals will do that. But what you can't do is say, I just believe in facts. Everyone else believes in fantasy people in the sky or whatever because uh, mm -hmm. that's silly yeah okay so this question comes from genuine curiosity or maybe it's ignorance but how can you genuinely be a communist and live in a democratic country um well people can disagree with the the dominant ideology or political practice of wherever they live all the time um you can be a Muslim living in the Vatican too, right? Um, the question of, well, you participate in society. How can you have a, a fundamental criticism of it? Why don't you just, you know, go blow something up or whatever? Uh, is, I think, fundamentally kind of silly. And it's a way of delegitimizing people who have deep critiques of the place that they live. Mm -hmm. um, when, when Paul Robeson, famous, one of the most, like, impressive Americans to ever live was Paul Robeson, who was, you know played in the NFL, was a great artist, was a lawyer, you know, a pretty like modern renaissance man. And he was also as well as a proud communist and was sort of was dragged in front of the House on american uh, Activities Committee and was, was interrogated about his communism and how he could be a communist in an America where he had accomplished so much, especially as a black man, to have accomplished so much and excelled to the degree that he had and was basically told like, well, if you don't like it here, you know, why don't you get out? Why don't you just go somewhere you like better? Why don't you go to the Soviet Union at that time if that's where you want to be? Ignoring that then later the American government prevented him from going to these places. And he said basically like, look, I'm part of this place as much as anybody is. I've got a, as much a right to America as anybody does. And so don't tell me about anywhere else. Don't tell me about going anywhere else. I belong here as much as you do. And I'm going to say what I have to say as much as you are. And so I, I have a similar attitude toward that, I guess, coming from a slightly different place. But I don't think uh, because some people are in charge of this territory now that they have a right to it. I don't think there's any legitimate claim to the continent of North America by, you know, the American state or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you live in Alaska, right? Like how long has Alaska been a territory of the United yeah. States? Not very long. There are people over no, there no. who like whose parents were there before that. Um, yeah, 
and to say like, well, why are you here? Get the fuck out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, totally. Exactly. You can, you I agree. Totally make that claim. And if I make that claim, at least they could say, we're not going to fucking burn the whole place down and you're going to burn the whole place down. Uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, we need to be looking at who's not going to burn the place down, not uh, who's in charge now. That should be the yeah. criteria by which we are evaluating how we're going to run things. So to close this out, I know it's difficult or maybe even impossible, but what societal ills do you think our kids will be blaming us for? Ooh, I mean, I think the environment is the most obvious one. Uh, and biodiversity. God, if you think like things are bad now, imagine a world in which like wild animals to the degree that we were growing up to think about them don't exist. Mm-hmm. Where they're like, you don't have fish, basically, in the oceans. Um, where you don't have seasons outside. I think it's going to be a big one that we get blamed for, the destruction of seasons. I mean, that's sort of the conclusion of the first book is like, if we don't change this, we're on the hook for all these disasters. Like, it's going to be our fault. We're not going to be able to point back to the big baby boomers and be like, well, we didn't cause global warming or whatever. We're going to be on the hook for a lot of this shit as far as further cohorts are going to be concerned. Uh, so unless we want that bill, we better think about some other shit we're going to be doing real fast because we're on the hook for something we can't really pay here. Mm-hmm. So seasons. Yeah, seasons I think is a big one, right? Things we learned about in kindergarten that no longer describe the world. It's like, do, do kindergarten teachers teach four seasons right now? Do they still do that? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I feel like I should know, though. <laughs> right? Like, that's, that should be something we should be talking about. Um, yeah. But it's like the fundamental facts of the planet Earth have changed during our lifetime to that degree, right? Where we're like, this is like the basis of knowledge has shifted. And we need, we need to understand that and start acting like that's the kind of time we're living in instead of like assuming things are going to go back to whatever we think normal was based on the baby boomer experience. You know, I think that Alaska is on the forefront of climate change, at least in the U.S., and us seeing things like melting sea ice right in front of us, uh, things like, you know, the opening of the Bering Strait for ship traffic and how that affects sea life. You know, there's there's these things that are just like fundamental that are are changing and it's scary. Yeah, and, and I mean, indigenous people have been telling us about this, that this stuff is going to happen for a very long time, right? It's not just mm-hmm. about like carbon emissions. It's not like, oh, if we invent a magic decarbonization machine that everything can go back to normal. It's not the hole in the ozone layer, right? This is These are fundamental characteristics of the way our society works, of how we produce value, of how we reproduce ourselves uh, that are not functional, that are not sustainable, that like do not work insofar as working includes not burning the entire planet down. Well, on that note. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Shit is fucked up and bullshit. Uh, (laughs) There we go. So thank you so much for being on the show, Malcolm. I, I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thanks so much for having me, Cody. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 